The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the Monroe Doctrine. In 1823, our nation was growing up as fast as it could, but the world's global powers were changing just as fast. No one knew who was a rival and who was a trusted friend. So it was clear our new nation had to do something to keep up. So POTUS V and his cabinet created what would become the most critical piece of international policy for not just that moment, but for generations of future presidents. What's in this simple policy that made it so revolutionary? and so long-lasting. We'll break it down on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us truly understand this extremely important piece of American history is author and professor of history, Jay Sexton. He grew up in the Midwest, spent two decades across the pond at Oxford University in England, and then returned to the Midwest, now teaching at the University of Missouri. His specialty is the political and economic history of the 19th century, which leads us to one of his books titled The Monroe Doctrine. Empire and Nation in 19th Century America. You'll find a link to this title as well as his other books on our AmericanPotus.com website. Jay, we've been looking forward to this discussion today. Thanks for joining us here on the show. No, it's great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jay, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the Monroe Doctrine. Really a terrific book. Let's start today with the basics of the Monroe Doctrine. When was it initially promulgated? What did it say in outline, and why did President Monroe consider it necessary at that time? Well, we got to go back to the uh, early 19th century, so the Monroe Doctrine, or what's going to become called the Monroe Doctrine later on. I mean, it's not conceived as this binding doctrine at the time, and I'm sure we'll talk about that issue in a bit. But I mean, the context here is the kind of tail end of the Age of Revolutions, um, in particular the Western Hemisphere, the old uh, imperial colonial regimes that had organized and structured political and economic life in North and South America were were unraveling. And of course, this had happened kind of first with the uh, American Revolution in 1776, and and that had triggered all kinds of subsequent revolutions in, in Haiti in the 1790s. And then, of course, in this period in the early 19th century across um, Latin America. Um, and, and this is the days in which the, the, the new republics of, of Latin America are fighting to free themselves from Spanish a colonial rule. So, I mean, I guess what it, the big context is what we would now call decolonization, or the unraveling of imperial regimes, which um, leads all sorts of power vacuums, all sorts of power vacuums and questions about, you know, what's going to be the new forms of power and authority which replace these old empires? Um, And that's the big question, I suppose, um, when Monroe's cabinet sits down in 1823 and they, they hear news that 
that the reactionary monarchical powers of continental Europe might be um, plotting to make a last-ditch attempt, uh, led by the French, to um, shore up Spanish rule, to to um, reconquer Latin America, and and for one final attempt to preserve the old order. Um, and that's what Monroe's cabinet is sitting there debating about what to do. It's clearly not in the interest of the United States to allow that to happen. So that's the big that's the big background context of the Monroe Doctrine. I see. And of course, Great Britain also factored into that, both as someone that uh, we had great anxiety about, a nation we had anxiety about, but also you make the point that in an, an odd way, uh, Great Britain made the Monroe Doctrine possible. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole crisis about uh, in 1823 is in part triggered by this really unexpected kind of offer of joint action, which the British um, sound out the United States' minister, Richard Rush, in London in, in the summer of 1823. The, the British don't want the, uh, the reactionary powers of Europe to reconquer Latin America any more than does the United States. Um, you, you listeners might know that you know, the decolonization of Spain's empire um, offers this great um, opportunity, commercial opportunity for British exporters and investors and so forth. So, so they rather like um, Spain losing out of its empire. And of course, the United States does too, because the United States has its eyes set on um, Spanish territories, places like Florida and further west on North America's Pacific coast. So there's a, a kind of shared interest in Spanish decolonization. But of course, there's huge mistrust between the British and the Americans. I mean, we just fought the war, eight, the War of 1812. It had only been done now for you know less than 10, than 10 years, a lot of distrust. Um, and so you know, the big question that the Monroe cabinet debates is, should we operate with the British or should we uh, pursue an independent strategy? And I have to say, despite the myth to the contrary, that, that question's not really answered in 1823. They, they just keep kicking the can down the road. They, they don't want to immediately accept Britain's offer. Um, they're afraid of doing so because that might prohibit the United States from taking some of Spain's former colonies, in particular um, Cuba and Texas, always been on the radar screens of Americans. So they don't want to sign up for that, but but they don't want to rebuff the British because they know, and, and this is maybe the key point you're getting at, they well know that, that there's only one um, force of power that is going to uphold a prohibition on the recolonization of Latin America by the European powers, and that's Britain's Royal Navy, you know, the most, the most powerful naval force by far in the world. And so when Monroe ultimately delivers his message to Congress in December 1823, announcing that the Western Hemisphere is now off limits to future colonization, um, the United States really has no means of enforcing that. <laughs> right, uh, right. It's it's the Royal Navy that gets the job done. So it's a, a very shrewd, canny move, actually, by the Monroe team um, to boldly pronounce their position and then outsource the really expensive, <laughs> messy bit of upholding it to the nation's greatest rival. <laughs> That's yeah. It takes takes a little bit of guts to do that. It's really really pretty impressive. Um, now you show after that was promulgated, after they made that pronouncement, the Monroe Doctrine was used throughout our history in a variety of ways by presidents and others. How did President Jackson and others reference the Monroe Doctrine to advance the settlement of the West, especially the 
the displacement of Native Americans? No, it's good. It's a good question. I mean, on the on the one hand, the Andrew Jackson um, d- doesn't really want to do much with this um, uh, foreign policy that's associated with um, uh, one of his predecessors and associated with John Quincy Adams, his great rival, of course, from the election of 1824. So he doesn't really really use that phrase Monroe Doctrine. He doesn't point to the message much. Indeed, there's a fascinating little episode um, uh, in the during his presidency when the British take the Falkland Islands, the Malvinas Islands from Argentina, and um, the, the Argentines write Jackson, the Jackson administration, and say, "Hey, this is against the rules, man. This is <laughs> against the Monroe Doctrine." And Jackson doesn't care about uh, distant islands in the South Atlantic. No, no, not at all. The, 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 the Jackson foreign policy is really about um, the North American continent. It's about westward expansion. It is about um, trying to resolve the problem of, of indigenous relations, relations with indigenous peoples. Um, and insofar as the Monroe Doctrine is relevant to Jackson's uh, conduct of a territorial expansion, it's, it's in the fact that w- what we see by the time we get to the 1830s is that the Monroe Doctrine and U.S. foreign policy cuts off any alliance that indigenous peoples uh, could make with European powers and empires. And, and if you look back in earlier times, you look back in the 18th century, um, you know, it had been the way in which indigenous societies had played the European powers against one another. That's really what had prevented the rapid settlement and colonization of the North American interior. And and once you end that process, once you don't allow any European uh, traders, any any British forts, you know, in the Great Lakes region, which, of course, the British had had those forts there even into the 19th century after the revolution. Once that's all eliminated, it really changes the power dynamics of how the United States and indigenous peoples relate to one another. It's now a sort of binary. It's U.S. power against indigenous power. Completely different context um, than it had been in the earlier period. And that spread westward, of course, uh, a major player was Mexico. How was the war with Mexico and then our subsequent dealings with that nation over the rest of the 19th century supported by various presidents using referencing the Monroe Doctrine. This is when we first get that uh, get that phrase used in in wider currency. Monroe Doctrine is in the is in this expansion of the 1840s and it is it is primarily um democrat expansionists, um oftentimes pro-slavery democrats. Um the pre- the key president here is of course James K Polk, the, the first dark horse candidate, the the big advocate of expansion, the architect, really, of the Mexican War. Um, Polk invokes Monroe's doctrine, what he calls Monroe's doctrine, um, to justify to justify his assertive foreign policy. Um, and and what, he's, what he's saying here is that you know, Me- Mexico's hold on strategically valuable territories, above all, what he's really got his eye on is California and those ports in California. Mexico's hold on those territories is so weak, of course, that it just been demonstrated with the Texas Revolution, you know, a few years earlier. Mexico couldn't hold Texas. It's unlikely to be able to hold the Pacific Coast. 
Um, and that that vacuum, which is going to be created, will invite the meddling of foreign powers, Britain or France. Um, and so uh, Polk actually, what he's doing is he's twisting, he's justifying his very aggressive um, foreign policy. He's presenting it as, as reactive, reacting to um, designs of the traditional European imperial powers. And I just add that there, there, there really wasn't much evidence um, that the British or the French were going to stand in the way of U.S. expansion. Um, and so with Polk, I think what we see, his use of the Monroe Doctrine is really more about um, you know, domestic politics. It's about using a, a, a popular, powerful symbol of nationalism to clothe and to cloak what is actually a very divisive and partisan and indeed sectional um, foreign policy. Uh, so Pol- Polk's a really important figure in the, yeah. in the long history of the Monroe Doctrine in how he kind of he changes what was once an, an isolated um, statement given by the president in one specific context. And he's now presenting it um, as justification for a completely different set of, of policies. Well, as, as Scott will confirm, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with James K. Polk, and that, that's another conversation. I wonder, do you think the Oregon question impacted his thinking on that, too, the, the dealings with the British in terms of the Oregon Territory? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly on his mind. It's it's not as much on his mind like in his in his diary entries when he's uh, talking about the Monroe Doctrine privately, you know, you know, in his own mind. But certainly publicly, uh, a lot of Democrats and a lot of northern Democrats are saying, hey, you know, the British holding the Oregon Territory and pushing their claims further south. Um, that's a violation of this of this uh, alleged doctrine which uh, Monroe created, um, you know, two 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 decades before. But I, I would say that there is a huge difference in how uh, your guy Polk pursues his southern um, sort of foreign policy versus how he pursues the, the northern foreign policy. So when it comes to you know t- Texas and the, the Southwest, you know prepared to go to war, absolutely invade Mexico, occupy Mexico City, not a problem. But when you start talking about um, the Northwest and the Oregon Territory, you know, Polk is pretty quick to cut a deal, uh, to cut a deal with the British and, of course, to split the territory along the the 49th uh, parallel, which, as you will know, um, you you know, really frustrates um, the Northern Democrats. They feel betrayed. They feel like they they had stood by the president on the question of the Mexican border and the, the war against Mexico, but then they'd been sold out when it came to their own interests in the in the Northwest. Yeah. So, of course, after the Mexican War and that, that great acquisition of territory, slavery became even more of an issue and the possible spread of slavery. You show in your book that those in favor of extending that institution, including eventually the leaders of the Confederacy, Use the Monroe Doctrine for their own purposes. Can you tell us how they did that? Yeah, I mean, for, in the for this for the statesmen of the South, um, it's just impossible to um, think about how they understood the world and U.S. foreign policy without putting slavery at the at the center of the story. In fact, we go back to 1823 when the Monroe Cabinets, you know, having those initial debates about how to respond to Britain's offer and what to do about this alleged threat of European intervention. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those who are in favor of the most assertive foreign policy, 
who want to ally with Britain and want to do everything that they can to uh, prevent uh, French or European intervention, that they're all from slave states. You know, it's John C. Calhoun above all um, in that cabinet. It's also uh, Monroe. It's also former presidents, uh, Jefferson and Madison. And those who have a much lesser per perception of threat um, are from the North, above all John Quincy Adams. And Adams is like in 1823, he's like, you know, I don't think that the Europeans are so crazy that they're actually going to try to to conquer Latin America. And, and even if they try to do that, it's not going to succeed. So you have two very different perceptions of threat. And I think it's because how they look out at the world through the prism of being from a slave or a, or a free state. And if you're a, a Southern statesman, um, what you are really concerned about in this period is any kind of international conflict or instability. Uh, the, the lesson from the age of revolutions was that uh, was that conflict and above all wars um, had been incredibly disruptive for slave societies. And that's how slavery died out in Latin America um, throughout the process of the Latin American revolutions. You had to build a big firewall around your state. You had to insulate yourself, um, not just from anti-slavery ideas, but also from political I mean, international volatility and instability. Um, so that's what the that's what the pro-slavery statesmen are thinking. And I think you can just draw a line and you can see their um, invocations of the Monroe Doctrine all the way up through the Civil War. It's not about ideology. It's not about, you know, Republican government versus monarchy. Um, it's about protecting slavery. And of course, to protect slavery, you've got to be prepared to pursue um, an array of different policies, some of which might even be contradictory. So sometimes uh, someone like Calhoun will take a really tight uh, conception of the Monroe Doctrine and national interest. Um, sometimes they'll take a little looser, more expansive view. Sometimes they'll, they'll want to break off relations with the British. Of course, the British um, abolished slavery in their empire in the 1830s. And, and then sometimes, like in the Civil War, they actually want to draw those European powers in um, to North American affairs to help them as allies against the again their struggle against the North. So it's policies all over the map, but the but the goal, the objective, is the same throughout, and that's to preserve the South's uh, institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the Civil War, I was reminded yet again of the the trauma that President Lincoln went through, the the many battles he had to fight during that war. And you noted that both radical Republicans and Democrats used the Monroe Doctrine to attack President Lincoln during that war. Can you tell us how and why they did that? Well, you know, while while the Civil War is going on in this country in the 1860s, there's also a Civil War down in Mexico. Mexico, which, of course, had been incredibly destabilized since the, the war against the United States in the 1840s. Um, in essence, an ongoing civil war. But when the United States gets consumed in its own internal conflict, um, that's when the Mexican Civil War gets internationalized. Um, and that is when um, the European powers and eventually just the French um, intervene in Mexican affairs, take the side of Mexican conservatives, install a, a puppet um, archduke on the throne as the emperor of, of Mexico. Um, it is certainly... Um, a violation of, of of the Monroe Doctrine to the extent to which there is a clear policy. I mean, that, that's exactly the fear that the 
Monroe team had in mind back in 1823. But it's very interesting. Lincoln um, and his Secretary of State Seward, um, they're very careful not to invoke the Monroe Doctrine, not to get sucked into the um, international crisis in Mexico, simply because, simply because um, all hands are on deck fighting the South. Uh, Lincoln says famously, and I think very revealingly, uh, one war at a time um, when, when someone is making the case for why the United States should be more aggressive in opposing the French intervention. So, so that's the context. Um, and th that policy, by not invoking the Monroe Doctrine, by being rather passive um, in the uh, in the in the in reaction to this French intervention, this opens the door to domestic critics of the Lincoln administration to really pummel the government, particularly in the uh, kind of build up to the election of 1864. It becomes a way of discrediting the Lincoln administration without opposing the Union war effort. You know, you want to find a you want to find a winning issue that isn't going to be opposition to the war effort. And so foreign policy becomes a really important one. And you see it from right across the spectrum. You see these radical Republicans who um, have ideological alliances with Mexican liberals. Um, and indeed, it's Mexican liberals, the Mexican ambassador, real young guy, dynamic guy, Matias Romero, is in Washington in the 1860s. And he just gives uh, speeches. He goes to, to dinners. He's always saying, you guys got to invoke the Monroe Doctrine. And so you get those radical Republicans um, who really like that message and, and they want to get rid of Lincoln because they think he's dragging his feet on a number of radical agenda items, not least even still at this point, slavery. Um, but then you get the, the Democrats who are kind of really searching for a way to, um, to find a winning message in 1864. And they, they cotton on to the, to the issues of foreign policy and the Monroe Doctrine. So the Lincoln administration is getting it from all angles. Um, they weather the storm, obviously, win, win the election, don't really change the policy until after the war, until after Appomattox. And that's when you see the pressure being ratcheted up um, against the, uh, the, the French regime, the pro-French regime in Mexico. That, that's when the pressure gets ratcheted up. And ultimately, as we all know, uh, Maximilian faces his uh, fate in front of a Mexican liberal firing squad um, in, in 1867. Anyone who's been to the National Gallery in London will know that that uh, famous painting, the Vane, of um, of Maximilian um, getting getting shot before that firing squad. Yeah, and as I recall, then after Appomattox, as you say, that pressure is ratcheted up, and arms start going across the border. That type of thing. So. The, the French have to see a pretty powerful force across the border at the conclusion of the war, and that had to increase their nervousness significantly, I would assume. Yeah, you got, you got the armed shipments coming, coming in from, you know, supporters of the liberal regime, particularly out of the port of, of New Orleans, which had been in Union hands, hadn't it, since 1862. But that, again, that's, that's non-state. That's, yeah. that's unofficial, um, which is really important in the 19th century, actually. You know, all the, for the POTUS listeners out there, we, we must realize that the, the state and its official apparatus, its power, the presidency itself, um, isn't as organized or as efficient in the 19th century as it is in our times. So sometimes the most important stuff is happening unofficially. Um, and then I just say one more thing, and that is, 
you know, for all the significance of ratcheting up the diplomatic pressure and U.S. arms being shipped down into Mexico, let's not forget the 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 the, the real critical factor here, which is the resistance yes. of the Mexican liberals, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the Juarez um, government, and uh, it's it's Mexican liberal resistance which makes uh, France's intervention untenable. I mean, for 19th century France, it's like the U.S. and Vietnam in the 20th century, or Af- Afghanistan in the 21st, just kind of getting sucked into this quagmire with really no way, political way, of getting a majority support to make that, uh, to make a foreign regime stable. Fascinating. Now, I know you talk also about the the idea of a canal across Central America. I just finished a, a great book by Matthew Parker called Panama Fever, all about the canal. Just a fascinating story over the years. Which presidents tried to make that canal a reality? And how did the Monroe Doctrine factor into those actions of trying to get a canal built in Central America? Well, it's, it is just totally significant for the um, for the, US, the United States to have a transisthmian transit route. Um, you, your listeners might not know this, but the majority of travelers from America's East Coast, the Atlantic Seaboard, to the Pacific Coast in the mid 19th century, the majority of them didn't go across the continent in the covered wagons. They they went, as you say via the isthmus, even before there's a canal, you have a, a railroad built. Little known fact, the world's first transcontinental railroad built in 1855, 47 miles long across the, the Panamanian isthmus. And so you have all these travelers um, getting from, say, New York to San Francisco via the isthmus. So it's very clear that you need um, both a, an imperial system to safeguard that mm-hmm. transit route mm-hmm. But then, as you say, you want you want to improve the infrastructure. You want to build a canal. This is, you know, early on, it's a project that's first endorsed by the Whig government of uh, Zachary Taylor. So we're going back to like 1850. Um, Plans kind of go away in the 1850s. U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, one president after Taylor, he's very interested in Isthmian politics. In fact, I think Grant, as a soldier in the 1840s, had crossed. Central American um, isthmus during the days of the Mexican War, um, but those early presidents um, in this period are prepared to think about a kind of international consortium, some kind of an international deal with the British to do a canal. Not least because the United States doesn't necessarily have the funds to finance a massive infrastructure project like this. So, you know, they want to attract the British capital, and they're trying to find a way to get it done. Um, nothing really comes of these early schemes. It's in the later 19th century when the United States becomes more powerful, when it has the industrial, technological, and financial prowess to do a, a canal project unilaterally. That's when you get um, some of the some of the late 19th century presidents. Uh, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes, right after Grant, is an important uh, moment in this transition. But then, of course, the Republican presidents thereafter are all going to make the the canal an important um, centerpiece of their foreign policy. And of course, when you get to the days of, of Teddy Roosevelt, that's that's when it happens. Yeah. I'm sure the the French efforts to build that canal, which were ultimately unsuccessful, caused a bit of heartburn. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So everyone, all the 
advocates of a unilateral U.S. canal were like, hey, this is a violation of the doctrine. Ferdinand <laughs> de Lesseps can't be allowed to do this. I would say that de Lesseps is a very savvy political operator as well as, a, as an engineer. I mean, de Lesseps goes out of his way to say that um, you know, the French canal scheme in Panama isn't isn't trying to counter U.S. power, the Monroe Doctrine. In fact, he says it's the fulfillment of the, of, of the Monroe Doctrine. Of course, it was partly a sales pitch. He was yeah. looking for capital on Wall Street when he said that. Yeah, so you always right. want to preach to the <laughs> choir. But yeah, you know, advocates of U.S. power are always in the late 19th century. Um, they're always looking for evidence of a European power doing something that might be dangerous to U.S. interests and then politicking on that issue and using it um, to ask for something else, to ask for a more assertive foreign policy. Above all, of course, late 19th century, asking for more funds for the Navy so you can start be, uh, building a, a, a a large white fleet of, of battleships. That's what's really important to a lot of these Republicans. And, and things like the Delesseps canal scheme is really grist to the mill um, to, make those, to make those pitches. And you realize, not to get off on a diversion here, how difficult building that canal was that the man who oversaw the building of the Suez Canal could not pull it off. You know, exactly. Just, yeah, really um, an amazing feat when it finally was done by the Americans. So let's talk about a president we don't talk a lot about, and that's President Grover Cleveland. You, you note in your book that the uh, crisis in Venezuela, where we had a, a kind of confrontation with Great Britain in what 1895. Can you review for us the basics of that confrontation, which I found fascinating, what it tells us about Cleveland's interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine. Well, I'm surprised you guys don't talk about Grover Cleveland. We should much. talk more. I don't know. Scott <laughs> Scott won't let me. I don't know why. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I mean, everybody knows everybody knows he's the only, you know, to to, to serve the non-sequential terms. Yeah, yeah. But but people, you know, you gotta go a step beyond that for POTUS listeners. You know, yeah. they gotta know <laughs> gotta know more about I mean Cleveland Cleveland, so in my favorite Cleveland quote, God, I'm gonna get it wrong. What was it when the Congress. No one, no one will know. Oh, Congress. No. Yeah, no one will know. That's a burn. But but con Congress passes a relief bill to um, get, give funds to farmers in the, like the plains. I think it is from a grasshopper plague, and uh, Cleveland vetoes it, doesn't he? And he says something to the effect of, you know. Uh, the people are here to support the government, but the government is not here to support the people. Oh, um, so that that's like <laughs> Cleveland's Ouch. vision of wow. the federal power, yeah. and I think that's Grover Cleveland, man. Grover Cleveland, you know, small government doesn't want to raise taxes. He doesn't want to build a big navy. He doesn't want you know huge new regulatory bodies to oversee the America's industrializing economy. He doesn't want imperial expansion. I mean, that's a huge one, right? Right. Mm -hmm. When he first comes in in that first term, take the Marines out of Panama. We don't want to get sucked in. Don't want to annex Hawaii. Let's get out of that um, diplomatic crisis down there in Samoa. Yeah, that is Cleveland for you. That's his vision of foreign policy. So it's this huge irony that it's the Cleveland administration, which so aggressively intervenes in this kind of obscure border dispute between Venezuela and uh, British Guyana, part of the British Empire. And this, this little border dispute had been going on for like two generations, decades. 
But there was something new and something new about it, which I think alarmed the Cleveland administration. And what was new was that this was getting sucked in. This issue was getting sucked into this new popular politics of empire when you get to the late 19th century. And you have um, advocates of a big navy and empire, um, mostly from the Republican Party, people like uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge, Alfred Thayer Mahan, the naval theorist. You got these guys um, pointing to British aggressions down there in Venezuela, why, why they need more funds for their navy. And then you got the Venezuelan government doing a great job of playing their hand. They hire an American propaganda agent called Scruggs. And they say, Scruggs, write us a pamphlet. Get us the popular opinion agitated. So Scruggs writes this pamphlet in 1894 called the Monroe Doctrine on Trial or, or something like that. And then, and then most generally, I suppose, this is the 1890s. This is the days of the scramble for Africa. This is the days of imperial rivalry in, in East Asia. And it was feared of a possible scramble for Latin America. And, um, you know, Grover Cleveland, kind of backward looking, small government, strict construction of the Constitution. He just wants none of any of this stuff. He don't want a big Navy, doesn't want to get sucked into imperial politics. And so he's just going to very aggressively, diplomatically intervene in this obscure dispute to sort of make a bigger point. And the bigger point is... You know, we just want to say that there is a new set of rules that will be abided by in the Western Hemisphere, which will save us from having to do all of these things we don't want. You know, they just want to pull the rug out from underneath their domestic and international critics. Um, so that's what the, the aggressive diplomatic intervention in the Venezuela crisis is all about. Of course, it, it, it ironically, from Cleveland's perspective, it doesn't succeed. I mean, it, it just pours further fuel onto the fire of this public opinion that's becoming really interested in imperial questions. I mean, the genie is out of the bottle. Um, and the Monroe Doctrine actually becomes this focal point um, for the politics of empire and anti-imperialism in the years after 1895. Now, before I move on to the next question, I will say I would love for all the Cleveland fans out there to... Uh, come our way, talk to us. We'd love to have some Cleveland scholars on American POTUS. That's a president we haven't represented yet. So please come on, give us a call or email, and we'd love to have you on to talk about Mr. Well, Cleveland. you know, and you're going to talk about Cleveland. It's going to be a lot of it's going to be about the gold standard and free trade. Bring it on. Love it. And his mustache. He had a great oh, mustache. He did. He did. Yeah. If nothing else. That was yeah. awesome. So let, let's let's go into the new century. Talking about Great Britain, we, we obviously still had issues with Great Britain, but also as the 20th century dawned, we started to focus more on the possible threat of Germany in the Western Hemisphere. What what was behind those concerns, and how did how did they manifest? Well, in, in part, it's because the the British have kind of acquiesced to uh, U.S. dominion in, in the Western Hemisphere, and that's kind of one of the lessons from the Venezuela crisis. It's certainly one of the lessons from um, the the creation of uh, a, a pro-U.S. Panama and U.S. unilateral. Um, the development of a Panamanian canal. So, you know, Britain's not really a huge threat anymore. Um, and it becomes, for the first time, I think, less useful in U.S. politics, uh, though, though Anglophobia will continue 
um, to exert itself in certain moments later on. But, uh, you know, no one can say Britain's really um, a huge threat. Britain's kind of becoming an ally. Germany, it's not really known yet. What are the Germans? I mean, the, the, the rise of Germany and Japan, actually, like the United States, these are three new industrializing societies that really entered into periods of modernization in the 1860s and 70s. They all have kind of either civil wars or violent processes of national modernization at that same time. And they got huge economies growing, real new interests in this old British world or this world that's been dominated by the British Empire for so long. So there's real question marks on what on, on how they're going to relate to one another. And, um, you know, f- from the perspective of the United States, what makes Germany the German threat enter into U.S. politics is, is first the speed at which Germany is constructing a, a, a navy. Um, that's quite concerning. And then, of course, that Germany has direct links into the New World, into the Western Hemisphere, um, into Latin America through migration patterns. And so one wonders if uh, or the Americans at the time wondered if that could somehow translate into the creation of, of pro-German regimes in Latin American countries. So that was the concern. Again, I think the concern's totally inflated. I don't think uh, a German power re- represents or constitutes a, a massive threat to the United States at this time, but it's certainly politically useful. So the same people who who would use the British threat to ask for a big navy, um, they just kind of transition into using the Germans um, as the reasons <laughs> for for uh, for asking for whatever it is uh, mm-hmm. that they that they mm-hmm. might want. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt earlier. He crafted, uh, t- to no surprise to anyone, uh, an aggressive approach to the Monroe Doctrine. Can, can you tell us about what became known as the Roosevelt Corollary? So the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine is um, in 1904. And this is the policy in which the United States essentially says, you know, if, if we're going to say hands off to European powers in the new world, we're going to tell the the Germans, um, for instance, that they can't use naval power to recollect debts that are owed to them in Venezuela or Santo Domingo. The actual place in question in 1904 was Santo Domingo, the Dominican Republic. If the United States is going to say that, then um, it's going to have to take on the imperial burdens of, of controlling and stabilizing these regions and finding ways to ensure that European creditors get repaid their loans. So the United States is now taking on the very kind of imperial uh, presence in Latin America that it had always denounced and it always told the Europeans that they couldn't do. So this is a big shift. Yeah. But, but I, I'd say the thing I'd say about the Roosevelt Corollary is that it's a compromise policy between those on either side of that big debate in 1898, you know, that big debate after the Spanish-American War. Would the United States gobble up all these new colonies, places like the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam, um, or would it renounce imperialism? Well, in 1898, it, it went the route of these territorial colonial land grabs. In 1904, and of course, Roosevelt had been the big cheerleader for that. He wanted to do that. He wanted to take more territory I'm in 1898. By the time you get to 1904, you know, the American public is you know, no longer sold on that. Uh, idea. I mean, the, the, you get the Philippines, you inherit this massive 
insurrection, the Filipino insurrection, which is incredibly costly. It's one of those quagmires. It's unwinnable. Um, and the American public doesn't want to get sucked into more of these. But yet you got this problem in Santo Domingo where you have in political instability providing a, a destabilizing context, which could invite European intervention. So I guess what I'm trying to spit out is that it is an imperialist foreign policy, absolutely, that Roosevelt announces, but it's it's not what he would have wanted just six years before. It's not a full-on territorial land grab. It's a sort of surgical strike. It's the creation of a, of a protectorate system where the United States is going to manage some of the financial and political affairs without getting sucked into a full-blown um, occupation. And, and I think this is really important, not just in 1904, that you're bridging the difference between the imperialists and the anti-imperialists, but it's also the United States kind of doing a trial run of how it's going to exercise and project its power in uh, the American century. I mean, in the days of the Cold War and beyond is, you know, you're not going to have a sort of tr traditional imperial role for the United States you know, full-blown colonization of lands and ruling over peoples, it's going to be this more hybrid, informal imperialism. And I think the, the Roosevelt administration uh, really, uh, really, really plays an important role in laying the groundwork yeah. for that type of power projection. Just another way Theodore helped set the stage for the modern presidency. Really amazing. And, and, and Scott will be happy. I've called him Theodore the whole day and not Teddy. He gets very upset at me for doing that. Thank you. I bet Thank you. you. I bet you. Tr gets him even more agitated. <laughs> now, President Wilson, when he said that the Monroe Doctrine should be accepted by all nations as quote the doctrine of the world unquote, what did he mean by that? Well, I think what he, what he really meant, honestly, is he was fumbling around for a way <laughs> to um, to to sell his vision for both U.S. entry into the into the First World War and then some kind of new multilateral international institution to manage um, uh, international affairs. That's what he, he's wanting to do. He's wanting to try to present it as not a new thing, but as an extension of traditional U.S. policies and values. So he, this is an act of domestic politics when he when he when he when he inserts the Monroe Doctrine into his speeches um, in in his in his doomed bid, of course, to to sell the League of Nations to what is after the midterm elections in 1918. This is a hostile Republican Congress that he's having to deal with, um, and it's the Republicans, you know, since Roosevelt, since uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who've been talking about the Monroe Doctrine a lot. So he's trying to, you know offer his vision on their terms. No one really, no one really buys that or not enough people buy that in the, in the immediate context. But I, I think that's what Wilson's ultimately at. And I think that's, you know, the, the moral of, of that story there. And, and maybe when we step back looking at this long kind of tangled history, of the Monroe Doctrine more generally is that it's, is often about domestic politics as it is about foreign policy and, Americans, U.S. Americans are far more likely to invoke the Monroe Doctrine against one another, against their <laughs> political opponents, than they actually are to uh, to foreign powers. Um, I mean, if you'd have a 
chart of domestic invocations of it versus foreign policy. It wouldn't even be close. It wouldn't mm. even be close. This is an instrument of uh, 19th century American politics. Fascinating. Where does it stand today? Do presidents invoke it or reject the Monroe Doctrine today? How, how is it used in present-day America? Well, you know, the, every now and then it sort of pops up again. Mm-hmm. I mean, in recent times, John Kerry, in the days of the Obama administration, gave a speech to the Organization of American States saying that the Monroe Doctrine was dead. You know, it, you know he, of course, saying that because it has become associated with U.S. imperialism, an incredibly toxic symbol in Latin America. So Kerry's distancing the Obama administration from it. Uh, more recently, uh, John Bolton in the days of, uh, of Trump and the, the most recent iteration of the crisis in Venezuela, Bolton says, you know, the Monroe Doctrine is not dead. It's very much alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, try, probably trying to play to the Republican Party's kind of nationalistic base here rather than looking um, at how f- foreigners would think about it. So you see these isolated references, you know, every now and again, but I it's not really, I think, a key s- symbol or talking point in U.S. politics anymore. There's that great story in the days of the Cuban Missile Crisis when JFK and his team are all huddled around thinking about you know, what to do. And one of the advisors says, Mr. President, we got we to gotta invoke the Monroe Doctrine. And Kennedy's like, Monroe Doctrine? What the hell is that? (laughs) Doesn't remember. Like clearly he'd been gone that day of the history class. Um, But I would say one other thing. I mean, you know, all presidents now have their own doctrine. Isn't that interesting? In, you know, in the 19th century, in fact, all the way through into the first half of the 20th, if you were going to create your own kind of presidential foreign policy doctrine, you would present it as part of the Monroe Doctrine. You know, even if it had essentially nothing to do with the Monroe Doctrine, that's what Woodrow Wilson's doing with the League of Nations. Uh, That's what Roosevelt's doing with his corollary. That's what Polk is doing with the Mexican War and and so forth. You'd present it as part of James Monroe's legacy, not your own. I mean, I think in part because There's concerns throughout the 19th and early 20th century of what we now call the imperial presidency, that you wouldn't wouldn't want to consolidate too much power in the presidency. You'd want to say what you were doing was part of a broader tradition. That all changes. I mean, that changes Harry Truman with the Mm. Truman Doctrine in 1947. That's when that changes. And since then, I mean, in essence, every, every president either either says they have their own doctrine or their 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 partisans and advocates say that they have their own doctrine mm-hmm. it's kind of a thing now you, you become president you have to have your own distinctive foreign policy doctrine that's so mm-hmm. different yeah so different from the from the earlier period So, Jay, a terrific conversation so far, but I have a couple questions, if you don't mind. So, Monroe was an extremely popular POTUS at the time. Was the Monroe Doctrine equally popular, or was it even on the radar of the general public? Like, I'll put it this way. If CNN or Fox had been around in 1823, would they have even covered it? Well, they, they kind of were, CNN and Fox. I mean, you look at something like the National Intelligencer, um, the, the most prominent um, uh, you know, weekly kind of news outlet of the time, you know, and, and of course the 
you know, the press in those days, just as bare knuckled, partisan, savage to one another as, as in ours. So they were kind of around and they did cover it. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say it was like the biggest thing at the time. In, in part, the public, I don't think, was entirely aware of the of the threat of European intervention. Um, public wasn't quite primed for that the way that the high policymakers uh, were. And then also like the, you know, the, the, what we now call the Monroe Doctrine is three non-sequential paragraphs from within what was Monroe's annual message to Congress. So it wasn't like a, a coherent doctrine issued to the press and to the public. This was part of his, of his annual message. And it really wasn't a a thing, a thing yet. I mean, there's different sets of policies in there. And the, I mean, I don't know if you guys, your POTUS listeners have done a, done a show or an episode on the, on what we now call the state of the union address. I mean, this would be a lot of fun to think about how that historically has evolved, um, kind of has its roots in the 18th century and like annual messages of old world monarchs. But when, you know, the United States is this Republican society. So you don't want to give the president this, the, the the feel of a monarch, so it's it's not like delivered by the president. It's actually just a transcript delivered to Congress by a clerk, um, and the clerk reads it out loud. That was how the the 19th century State of the Union address um, kind of played itself out, and that's how the 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 announcement of this new policy it came in this really long um, annual message in 1823. So I don't think things like the National Intelligencer and the, and the, and the sort of uh, uh, Politico types of the era necessarily pieced it all together, how significant this policy might be in due course. It was just part of this broader annual ritual uh, to Congress. Jay, you need to be you need to sit in on our editorial meetings because that's the second good idea. Oh, I think that's a better I think it's a better idea than Grover Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do both for sure. Absolutely. So this is undoubtedly Monroe's legacy. The one thing most people remember about his time in the White House. Now, is that fair or did he have other initiatives that you feel are equally important or maybe more important? It's it's probably fair. I mean, you know, I think uh the, the the initial original doctrine of foreign policy under your name, you know, that that's the thing you're probably going to be remembered for. I mean, you know, I, I would say that the kind of irony is that uh, the formulation of the Monroe Doctrine is a collective thing. I mean, it's the, it's the Monroe cabinet. It's not just the president. I mean, uh, the secretary of state, John Quincy Adams, uh, secretary of war, John C. Calhoun, the secretary of the treasury. Um, Crawford, who's going to be running for president uh, the next year, uh, the list goes on. Henry Clay is in the in Congress talking a lot about Latin American issues. Uh, the list goes on. So this is a a kind of collective um, American uh, foreign policy rather than something just that we can just ascribe to to Monroe. Um, but still, you know, Monroe it, it does a good job what we would you know today call managing a team of rivals in that cabinet this is in some ways the original team of rivals 1824 1823 um does a really good job on on this does a good a similar job actually on the Missouri the Missouri crisis the Missouri compromise a few years before um and, and you know the analogy one might have for James Monroe is that 
he's kind of like the Dwight Eisenhower of the 19th century. People talk about Eisenhower in the hidden hand presidency. You know, you don't, you don't really get the sense Eisenhower is not thumping his chest like a, like a Roosevelt or something like that, like a Theodore Roosevelt, but he's, he's getting stuff done. Um, very deft political manager. I think that's how I would describe um, Monroe as president. And you see it very clearly um, in, in both his management of the Missouri crisis and probably even more so in, in the Monroe Doctrine episode. And I think that's an important legacy for us to reflect on that, like, you know, presidents don't have to be shouting at the top of their lungs at the top of a soapbox. They don't have to be, you know, incredible innovators of new political or diplomatic forms. They just need to preside over um, the government as it's going about its business. And maybe sometimes a little less power for a president ain't a bad thing. And Monroe's administration uh, might reveal that. So finally, my last question, in just a sentence or two, can you summarize just how important the Monroe Doctrine has been to this country? Well, I think the ultimate significance of the Monroe Doctrine is that it it provides a a way uh, for Americans to understand the global rise of the United States. um, To to see that global rise in in palatable ways in relation to a shared ideology and a shared opposition to European colonialism. But ironically, of course, it comes to justify um, not just the rise of the United States, but the emergence of American imperialism itself. So it's a, it's a complicated legacy, the Monroe Doctrine. Such an interesting story. What's, what's next for you, Jay? I, I am, I mean, I just finished a bunch of like nerd stuff, like professor books, <laughs> like no one will read. That took way too much time. I think the thing I'm going to do next is I'm going to write a history of the special relationship. Oh. Nobody's done that recently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's so much to be said, so mm-hmm. much to be said. If we can't understand the importance of like alliances with our closest allies, then, yeah. you know, what hope do we have in the 21st century? So that's what I'm that's what I'm starting to work on, but don't hold your breath. That that is a terrific idea. Earlier in American POTUS, we had Alan Packwood, who's a, a good friend who's director of the Churchill Archive Center at Cambridge. And I know Alan would be a terrific resource. His archives there are, are amazing. Uh, I'm sure that would be a, a great source for you. I've got to say it's been s- such a pleasure talking with you. And in my old days, I know we spoke before the recording began today about my alma mater, UK. When I when I studied there in grad school, I studied foreign policy and diplomatic history. So it was a, a real pleasure reading your book and having you on American POTUS today. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. And good luck to you guys. And hopefully we'll see each other down the road. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank best-selling author Jay Sexton for joining us on this episode about the Monroe Doctrine. More information on all of his terrific books can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available in the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau. 
an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from James Monroe, quote, If we look to the history of other nations, ancient or modern, we find no example of a growth so rapid, so gigantic, of a people so prosperous and happy.